This lecture series is um, one, sorry, this lecture is one in a series called Worldwide Perspectives on Europe, which is sponsored by the European Institute here at LSE and by APCO. Um, the speaker, as you know, is Kristalina Georgieva. She is, as of February last year, the uh, EU Commissioner for International Cooperation, Humanitarian Aid and Crisis Response. Before that, her last posting was as Vice President Corporate Secretary at the World Bank. Before that, she was head of the Moscow office of the World Bank. Um, she was head of the World Bank's big environment and sustainable development department. Um, she also has a special connection with LSE because in... Um, 1987-88, she was here as a fellow, and in that capacity she wrote the very first uh, textbook in, in Bulgarian, uh, which was not Marxist economics. <laughs> um, so her title for today is New Strategies for uh, Disaster Response, How the Increasing Frequency and Intensity of Disasters Will Reshape EU Policies. Kristalina. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here with, uh, with all of you. And uh, uh, as Robert said, uh, I have very fond memories uh, from 87, 88 when I was at uh, LSE, uh, including coming to this building and enjoying some of the, at that time, same cushy chairs. Um, Robert and I go actually way back. He did not mention that. We met uh, at the World Bank, and we there discovered, among many other things we share, that we also share a healthy skepticism towards political correctness. Um, and it's a long story. I won't go into it, but a story worth writing someday on why do as I say and not as I do is wrong. <laughs> but that's, that we can talk about it some other time. What I want to do uh, today is uh, uh, to share with you uh, what I have learned over the last two years as a Commissioner for Humanitarian Aid and Crisis Response, but coming with a background on working on climate change for many years uh, uh, on the topic of disasters and how we can best face them. Uh, but just as a background, uh, what, I what is it to be a Commissioner for Humanitarian Aid? How many of you know what the Commissioner for Humanitarian Aid does? Hence? Two, three, four. Six, okay, so I can, I can tell you a little bit about it. I, I, I really believe I have the best job in the commission. I also have the worst job in the commission. It is the best job because what I do is to mobilize help for people in their most dire moment of need. Last year alone, 2010, uh, we from the European Commission have provided uh, 1.1 billion euros to victims of conflicts and natural disasters around the world. More important than the money with, with these funds, we have touched the lives of over 140 million people, giving them food, fresh water, medication, shelter, protection, very often to kids and women that can be at risk of rape. But I also have the worst job because, unfortunately, the trend globally is towards an increase of frequency and intensity of natural disasters. And while conflicts are not growing in numbers, they are actually slightly going down in numbers, uh, their complexity is increasing and their victims are often very difficult to reach to. So, to do my job, I rely on my own staff. We have in the commission around 650 people employed in that service on humanitarian aid crisis response. Uh, more than half of my staff is not in Brussels. They are in the hot spots of this planet. They are in Darfur, they are in Juba in Sudan, they are in uh, Nairobi, they are in Moyale in Kenya, and I'll talk a little bit about it. 
And to do that uh, job of reaching out to 140 million people last year, we rely on partners, and our partners are non-government organizations and UN organizations specializing in humanitarian affairs, World Food Program, UNHCR, the uh, Refugees Organization of the UN, uh, UNICEF, and, and others. Uh, and actually, uh, the reason I am very happy to speak here, aside of being LSE, um, is because the UK is very strong in supporting humanitarian activities. Uh, among the NGO partners we have, 27% of the funding goes to UK-based organizations. Uh, so any, if any one of you is uh, either already working on humanitarian affairs or intends to work on, hum on humanitarian affairs, you will be joining a noble army of people who very often risk their lives. Uh, not very well known, but humanitarians are, this is one of the most dangerous profession. More humanitarians get kidnapped or killed than UN peacekeepers. And unfortunately, the trend of threat to their safety is, is not going down. It's, it is going up. Uh, we respond to conflicts and disasters around the world. We also have a very unique mandate because we respond to disasters inside Europe as well. Uh, in 2001, the European Commission created what is called, slightly bureaucratically, civil protection mechanism. But what it is is actually bringing the members of the European Union, do you guys know how many members the European Union has? 27. Okay, so. <laughs> um, does UK count as one? <laughs> the 27 members of the European Union plus four other countries, uh, they are countries of the uh, uh, economic zone or candidate countries, uh, uh, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, and Croatia. These 31 countries brought their civil protection, in other words, disaster response capabilities, to be connected for response to disasters, initially just inside Europe, but more and more uh, also outside. As an illustration, in 2001, when the mechanism was created, it was activated. In other words, there were cases when help from others was necessary three times, all three times inside Europe. Last year, the uh, mechanism was activated 32 times, 28 times it deployed uh, to help uh, victims of natural disasters uh, and actually in one case conflict in Libya. Most of these activations were outside of the European Union and this number itself from 3 to 32 tells us a little bit of what is going on around the world. Uh, Unfortunately, what, we've, what we witness is an increase not only of the frequency of natural disasters. Uh, on that count, the year I graduated from, from university was uh, 75. Oh, God, it was so long ago. In 75, the number of natural disasters uh, that were registered as, as major disasters was 78. Last year, using the same methodology, this number has grown to 385. And of course, a major driver of this increase is climate change, a topic that is right now under discussion in uh, Durban, and you know, we shall see what comes out of it. More important than this increase of frequency is the fact that when a disaster hits, more people suffer and there is more damage because simultaneously what we witness is increase of population. This year we crossed the seven, the seven billion mark and uh, increase in concentration in urban areas, more people living in, in clustered uh, places and also increase of economic development that puts more things at risk when a disaster hits. So that combination of increased frequency and increased intensity
creates enormous uh, challenges uh, that cannot be overcome by individual countries on their own. Uh, let me just reflect. I have been a commissioner now for two years only. In two years, I have seen every imaginable disaster many times, sometimes many times over. Earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, winter storms, summer storms, volcano eruptions. With the exception of a comet hitting our planet, everything you can think of has happened. And drought. And drought. Droughts, yes, droughts. And, and of course the most devastating now in the Horn of Africa. So when we, when we look at the implications, uh, uh, of course major dis disruptions. And if you, if you only take this year, 2011, uh, how many records we have broken in this one year? Uh, in 2011, uh, we had the uh, worst drought in the Horn of Africa since the mid-80s. 13 million people impacted, 450,000 in Somalia being hit by a famine. Basically, this means a death sentence is hanging on uh, over your head. We have seen the most expensive disaster the uh, triple disaster in Japan, uh, 200 billion pounds damage. I, I, was, uh, I traveled to the uh, Horn of Africa and I traveled to Japan. The most devastating thing, of course, is that in both cases, uh, people, are, uh, people are hurt tremendously. The economic damage, well, maybe you can recover, but the uh, broken communities, the broken lives. Uh, in, uh, when I arrived in, in Kenya, uh, we were, the first stop was the DAP camp. This is a camp for 460,000 people. And I was actually comparing uh, uh, in a previous meeting, uh, the city of the DAP, where the camp is placed, has a population of 120,000 people. The camp of the DAP is three times bigger. And just imagine what it would be if next to Oxford, which is about 100,000 uh, people, we have a camp for 460,000 uh, people. And what a devastation to the lives of these people uh, living in this camp is. Uh, but when I was there, what, what, what we saw was the arrival of people, uh, mothers with, with kids, some lost kids on the way. Uh, and the incredible dignity of these people, but also the tremendous pain and suffering that drought has caused to them. Same thing in Japan. Uh, actually, in disasters, one thing that, that you can never get accustomed to is to see the faces of people. And more often than not, the best out of people comes in that most difficult uh, moment. They help each other. In Japan, in one of the cities I went to, the... Uh, uh, mayor of the city, you know, we are discussing what problems they, they have. And I, I asked him, what is your biggest problem right now? He said, my biggest problem is that we have more volunteers that we can possibly accommodate. And I don't want to turn anyone uh, back. Well, hopefully in our economic crisis in Europe, the best out of us will come uh, true as well. Uh, my, the the, the uh, the problem that I, I want to leave with you as, uh, as young, especially those of us that are more mature, but also those of us that are younger, is that in this world of increased uh, frequency and intensity of disasters, no country, no region is safe. Uh, sometimes in Europe, not so much in the UK because of the uh, uh, floods and storms that you have experienced recently, but sometimes we have this illusion that, oh, this is the Asians' problem. Let the, uh, you know, the Japanese and the Thais, let them worry about it. By the way, uh, Thailand was also a record this year. The worst floods in 60 years in Southeast Asia. But truth is that, that we in Europe are also at quite substantial risk. And so I have a question for you. How many people do you think have died in Europe from natural disasters over the last 10 years? Give me a number. Don't be shy, don't be shy. You guys are brave. One number. 200,000. 
thousand. One thousand. One thousand. Hundred. Any other number? I would try to get to, to the closest number. So we have a thousand, one hundred, and two hundred thousand. No, Any I'm, other? I'm, I'm increasing mine. I say fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. Hundred thousand. That is the exact number. A hundred thousand people died from natural disasters in Europe over the last ten years. And it has costed European economies 150 billion euros. I have been now in a number of cases when we respond to disasters in Europe. And I can say that uh, very clearly for us, number one factor of damage are floods. 52% of the damage caused of disasters are related to floods. The UK very exposed to this risk. <coughs> But the largest number of people die from what? They die from heat. Elderly people dying from 70,000 elderly people primarily, but also kids, uh, people with uh, um, disabilities, died in 2003 from the summer heat at that year. So I don't want to, I, I don't want to sound alarmist, but it is a fact that we need to very substantially change our mindset when it comes down to living in this world of increased frequency and intensity of disasters. So let me, let me tell you what it means for us in the European Union. What is it that we are proposing to do? Our response is based on, on, on philosophy that is a game-changer philosophy and has three pillars. One Invest in preparedness and prevention relentlessly, relentlessly. Uh, I will give you just one example why investing in, in uh, preparedness and prevention is so critical. This summer, when hunger hit Kenya, the northern part of Kenya, we visited a district where since 2006 we are investing in disaster risk reduction, actually in, in drought uh, preparedness. Very simple things, like uh, uh, on the roofs of all houses, you put uh, special, special roofing that allows you to capture water from rain. Uh, when the first signs of drought come, you get the uh, herds to be shrunk, so lay, less livestock because there is less grass, and the livestock that you have is healthy, so it can be source of uh, food. Uh, put in action mobile clinics that travel around to identify kids that may be getting malnourished before they're severely impacted. And for kids under five, this is absolutely <coughs> critical. And the result is that in Moyale, in this district, the mortality rates and the acute malnutrition rates for kids were half the level of the neighboring uh, province, Turkana province. So, and, and we have examples of this nature. I mean, take, take, uh, take Chile and Haiti. Last year, that was my, my first uh, exposure to earthquakes. Uh, uh, first Haiti, 230,000 people died. Then Chile, 500 times stronger earthquake but the victims were 500, 500 too many, but 230,000, 7.2 earthquake, 500, 8.9 earthquake. I actually was in Chile. This is very interesting. We were there for the uh, uh, new presidents uh, of Chile stepping into, into uh, duty when we had a 7.2 aftershock, which is the earthquake that devastated Haiti. And yes, it was, you know, we were all shaken, um, but nothing collapsed, nobody was hurt. Uh, so the, this, this determination to invest in preparedness and prevention is something that has to go across absolutely virtually everything we do. My former employer, the World Bank, calculated that one euro or one pound or one dollar invested in preparedness brings four to seven in return. So how many investments do you know today that have 400 to 700% return? 
Any of you? I, I, I don't know any. So that is our first, our first absolutely determined approaches to invest in resilience. We already invest out of our own funding in humanitarian uh, affairs up to 10% of our budget in disaster risk reduction. Why? Because we cut the humanitarian cost of the future when we do so. And we want to see this to be cutting across development cooperation. Wouldn't be a surprise uh, to you, Robert, that we took it uh, up with the World Bank. And uh, this uh, September, we actually launched a determined uh, initiative on resilience where we bring the humanitarian world and the development world and the bank and the UN and the key donors on that platform. Uh, second in our, in our approach to, to uh, disaster preparedness and response is to strengthen our capacity in Europe to act together in the face of disasters. Even today, when there is so much Euroscepticism flowing around, 93% of the Europeans want to see us act together in the face of a natural uh, calamity. 93%. And for us, what it means is to glue the, na the national systems, and that's why I'm here, we are going to discuss uh, uh, this with, with UK authorities, to bring the, natural, the national systems for disaster response into an integral, integral uh, set. Do more in risk assessment. What kinds of uh, risks are there? What response we can have to these risks? Do more in committing assets from each of our countries voluntarily, but assets that we can deploy collectively and, of course, do more in coordinating this uh, deployment. And this is what my team is determined, committed to do. The third leg of the, the third pillar of this approach is international cooperation. In a world that is getting richer in some parts and more troubled in others, the theme of cooperation in disaster preparedness, disaster response, resonates with everybody. It resonates with everybody. I have been engaged with the Chinese, the Russians, uh, the ASEAN countries, uh, the countries in our neighborhood, Ukraine, others. Universally, there is a desire to cooperate. Most interestingly, I, uh, we signed a cooperation agreement with the U.S. And when we signed it, the head of FEMA, the administrator of FEMA, told me that he had two priorities to think of the unthinkable, to prepare for the unthinkable, and to prepare the United States to receive international assistance. And I frankly didn't think I would live long enough to hear the US saying we want to be able to get help from uh, others, but they do. Uh, so the approach we want to, to take in international cooperation is to build our own core system, as I said, connect connect our capabilities, then connect it to the neighbors. And for us, the most important neighbors are Turkey, vulnerable country, but also with strong uh, capabilities, and Russia, strong capabilities. Everything you can think of in terms of disasters can happen in, in Russia. But also the, the uh, southern and eastern neighborhood, the countries that surround us. And then build connections with the key players, Japan, the United States, but also build connections with some that we can think out of the box in action. And my, my favorite example is cooperation with Australia. Why? You would say, Australia, you know, where is Australia where we are here, here we in Europe? Well, here is the thing. Uh, one of the big threats in Europe are forest fires. When it is summer in Europe, it is winter in Australia and vice versa. And we can have a cooperation program in which we actually exchange skills, even potentially in the future uh, firefighting capacity for the seasons, and of course, expand our capabilities to deal with, with, with a common threat. Uh, since uh, I know that uh, Robert teaches uh, development, I want to finish with a note on when all is said is the end done. 
the best resilience builder is development. And for this reason, we from the humanitarian community strongly advocate for more development, better development. But we, development only makes a difference when it is done right. And to do it right, we need to actually have discussions. We have to have exchanges like the one I hope we'll have today that allows us all to have this change in mindset, mindset that prepares us for a world that may be richer, but is also more fragile. Thank you. Kristalina, your um, opening remarks about the increased frequency and intensity of disasters reminds me of a comment in The Onion, which is a US satirical journal, and which recently said, 2011 um, has already used up the whole decade's stock of bad news. <laughs> um, just on the, the last point about development, I do think that it... Um, there is a problem in the way that development has been, the concept of development has been operationalized. It's been come to be defined so much as just poverty, poverty reduction, and the whole idea of economic growth as, uh, as, as a means to poverty reduction. That means industrial diversification, upgrading, and so on. That has largely been lost. I'll bet that DFID over the past decade has said very little about how to promote a diversified and upgraded industrialization because the focus has been on poverty reduction, primary education, drinking water, and so on, and that's it. That, I think, is a really big problem in, in terms of your bridging between development yep. and humanitarian um, assistance crisis response. Anyway, so we have um, a little bit of time. I said we are on a timetable of a 100-meter race. <laughs> But we do have a little bit of time till the end. So, questions, comments? Yes. Um, how will you crisis affect uh, your efforts? Probably not now, because, um, because you are working out of an existing Q budget. Uh, but would your crisis affect your work, and in what way, and if you could put this in the context of the EU uh, director on, uh, directive on the euro, which is being currently discussed? Thank you. So the, the question is, how will the crisis in the eurozone affect the work of the uh, Commissioner of Humanitarian Affairs? That's the question. And Sorry, which European directive on what? Which European directive on? The one, the new one, the forthcoming one, currently discussed between France and Germany. On the, on, on the, on the crisis, on the crisis. On the euro. On the euro. On the euro. Okay. okay. Yep. <laughs> Do you want well, to? Would you... Yes, I would take. I would take okay. three questions so, in a row, and then yes. uh, and then maybe three more. Yes. Uh, I'm Mr. Bonfa from Oxford Sustainable Development, and uh, we are heavily involved in, let's say, strategy for poverty reduction, environmental climatology. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we are just planning, let's say, through the, some UK help in developing an ICT platform, IBM, Imperial College, and the, let's say, the Meteorological Institute. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to provide the information on real time. Mm -hmm. Now, my question is, we will, I will be very happy to have a discussion with your department because I think it's what, what you're looking for. And uh, what I'm concerning is, there are the technology existing in the world. If you think the big company from, I say, IBM, Microsoft, etc., they are so advanced in tools. The problem is that government that does not know at all, and you mentioned about Europe disaster, I think it's very important that this will be taken into consideration and information should start to put together, including the climatological issue. Because what, I'm, what we are concerned, okay, you cannot forecasting the climatology at a big scale, 
but at a small scale, yes. We are, I'm personally myself with a group of research of institute in Europe. I'm developing pilot projects. So my concern is, does Europe is still prepared on develop a strategy toward this direction? Because the impression is they hate technology. If you think Sorry, you ha what? they, they hate, hate, hate technology. technology. If you think you have spent so much money in developing European agencies, so what they have done? Just joint research center, just in Sevilla, just etc. etc. Yes, they collect information. What are the results? And I think this is the, my question, my concern. Thank you. So the basic point is that European agencies have not done well in adopting new ICT technologies for handling... Public sector, sector, not just European. I say the, the, the new tools, not let's say ICT. Are not using new tools, new tools yep. that are available, that everybody knows are still yep. not aware yep. at government level. That's, that's mm -hmm. the... I'm K. Mahesh, I'm a law student, and I handled uh, disaster management in Andaman and Nicobar Islands in South Asia, if mm -hmm. you remember. I just had two questions. Mm -hmm. You talked about the natural disasters. What about the man-made disasters mm -hmm. in Europe? Yep. How many people have died in the man-made disasters? Mm -hmm. Number two, do you have a legal framework in terms of entitlements uh, in, in the post-disaster scenario when people have lost their lives? Mm -hmm. What is the compensation you give? What is the relief, the post-rehabilitation framework? These are my two questions. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So let me take this, uh, this round, and then if you have time, we can do one more. Uh, very good question, and I am uh, not surprised. It is the first question to come. How is the crisis impacting uh, our work? Uh, two points, and then I will go into what, what is likely to happen next. The first is that... Uh, when it comes down to humanitarian operations, we are not yet seeing a substantial change in Europe. Neither, we don't see any change. On the contrary, we are going to have an increase, we are proposing an increase in the Commission's budget, but we are not seeing a decline in Europe, either in terms of support from the citizens or in terms of support from the states when a major emergency takes place. For example, public opinion survey says four out of five Europeans are in favor of humanitarian action despite of the hardship caused by the uh, crisis. Where, and also when we had the crisis in the Horn of Africa, Europe came as the most generous uh, donor Again, I mean, we are 20% of the world economy. We are 50% of humanitarian aid. And in this case, we provided 700 uh, million euros. This is over 550 million uh, pounds. The citizens of Britain, uh, the UK, uh, DFID, uh, provided 120 million pounds. The British people have provided 80 million uh, pounds to the victims of the uh, Horn of Africa uh, uh, disaster. So we are not yet seeing the crisis to push away generosity of the European people. We would run another survey uh, this year because, you know, we, we have to keep our, our finger on the pulse of this. But what we are seeing everywhere is increased expectation for accountability. Increased expectation, tell us what you do, what are you achieving with our money? How many lives are saving? you are saving? What are you doing to make sure that this money is not, uh, into, is not falling into the wrong hands? Uh, and actually, the reason I have so many people working in the field in, in, in very difficult circumstances is because they are the eyes and the ears of our uh, taxpayers. But looking into the future, there is a more, more of an evidence of decline in support for long-term development cooperation. Not so much, and I would say at this point not yet at all, on humanitarian activities. The underlying reason is that development cooperation also helps competitiveness of other countries. And that to a certain degree is losing a little bit uh, public support, especially 
when sometimes we have cases when governments uh, give money to governments and these governments waste it or, or even worse, steal it. So that is where I see more of a concern and I would be interested uh, you know, if, if people here have uh, uh, any reflections. Now, what is going to happen in Europe? Look, I, I come from one of the newest member states. Uh, we are optimists <laughs> for the future of Europe. And actually, we should be given more space to speak these days. Uh, and the reason I'm optimist is uh, twofold. First, our countries, the new member states, we have gone through painful adjustments. And we survived, and actually we are doing better as a result. We think it would be healthy for the older member states to catch up with the competitiveness of today and the new times. So that's my first reason to be optimistic. I have seen that pain actually eventually, if it is done right, leads to gain. Um, and the second reason I'm, I'm uh, optimistic is uh, because uh, the very simple truth is we live in a world where size matters again, where we are competing with China and India and Brazil, with ASEAN countries, with Indonesia is growing up. And in this world, none of our member states on its own can have the weight to bring benefits to its citizens on a scale. So necessity is going to drive us in the right direction. Uh, and as far as the, uh, the uh, discussions that are going on, uh, very simply, what we have today is the world expects that Europe will stand tall on its collective strength. In other words, the weaker countries, the stronger countries, together we are strong. For that to happen, of course, we need to have our strongest economy, Germany, on board. And for Germany, it is absolutely paramount that we have a clear commitment to fiscal discipline up front. So it's a little bit like you have a, uh, if, I, if I may use a, uh, uh, um, well, it's, how is the attitude towards drinking here? Bad, good, these are young people. You drink a beer every so often? So yeah, just imagine somebody who has been a little too strong on the drinking and needs to go for treatment. And goes in the hospital and the doctor there says, okay, I'll treat you, but you sign to never do it again. This is where we are uh, right now. And I think it would be a healthy development. I think it would be good for Europe. Uh, I uh, keep my savings in euros. I have no doubt that the euro will continue to be a good, uh, strong currency over the long term. <laughs> so, um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I truly believe that it would be a huge mistake for us to get lost in the pain and forget that, that we can have, as a result of the crisis, as Thailand did, as Indonesia did, as Russia did, as Poland did, as Bulgaria did, we go through, through adjustments and as a result we are stronger. So these, the, the second... Oh, sorry, I got so, so carried. I got so carried with this one question. Um, the, uh, on, on, uh, on the platform for, uh, for um, uh, use of... Uh, on, on the use of technology, you're absolutely right. There are many tools that can be applied. They're not yet utilized to the fullest, uh, including meteorological uh, data. We are committed in, in our proposal, in our legislative uh, proposal, we put the emphasis on risk assessment and scenario planning, and of course, investing in more in the capabilities of turning data into a decision-making uh, information. Uh, in my old days in Russia, we funded a project on the meteorological service for Russia from the World Bank. At that time, Russia was rich. Russia had oil coming and money coming out of their ears. And yet, they borrowed from the World Bank for this project because the economic impact was enormous. One dollar, sixteen dollars benefit from better forecasting. In, in, in other words, agricultural productivity and the rest. 
this is what this what, absolutely we in our member states we have uniformly support for this legislative proposal for more investment in risk assessment scenario planning and turning information into decision making tool we have to educate governments of course this job is not done overnight it would take time but it will be done and just uh, uh, for those in the audience that may think that uh, Europe doesn't care about research and development. In fact, the new uh, Europe 2020 strategy increases funding for research and development and sets a target for member states to increase funding in research and development. Because without that, our competitiveness is going to sink. Uh, on the uh, man-made uh, disasters in Europe, yes, we have industrial disasters. Uh, uh, the most profound last year was in Hungary. A red sludge went almost into the Danube. Luckily, they stopped it. Uh, I don't have data on the victims of uh, how many people died in, uh, in industrial accidents, uh, uh, but the number is not any close to the 100,000 people that died from, uh, from nature, from natural catastrophes. And uh, in Europe, the uh, investment in, in uh, requirements for safety is going up and up. Every disaster pushes us to go higher in terms of what we, we, we require. Uh, Post-disaster scenarios uh, depends on the country. It is, it is uh, legislated uh, domestically. So what compensations people uh, get, to what extent insurance plays a role, this is not yet uniform, uh, uniform in the European Union. Uh, we recently had with Commissioner Barnier, who is in charge of financial services, a conference on this topic, how we can bring insurance into the disaster management uh, equation. We only have one instrument at European level. It is called Solidarity Fund. When a country is hit by a major disaster and the damage is more than 0.6% of this country's GDP, it is eligible to receive assistance from the Solidarity Fund. But no more than, was it a billion a year? No more than 1 billion uh, euros a year can be uh, disbursed uh, through the Solidarity Fund. Okay, um, my own version of your, um, your proverb that is no, no pain, no gain, is no brain, no gain. <laughs> um, for those of you interested in uh, future employment, remember that Kristalina's commission employs, you said, some 650 people. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yes. Thank you. Hi, Alexandra Danielson, a master here in development studies. I'm wondering on aid effectiveness, after the Busan forum wasn't hugely successful, what is... Which forum? Uh, Busan. In Busan. Busan. The high level, yeah. Um, yeah. On aid effectiveness. I'm just wondering what will, what, what is the commission thinking about, on, what, what is the, the stance point on aid effectiveness and what are you planning on doing? Mm -hmm. Okay. Hi there, um, my name is Adam, a master's student from Thailand. Um, the current flooding situation in my country, a lot of people there blame the sort of the governance challenges for the national government to collaborate and communicate uh, with the people and internationally. I wonder what, what the strategy or plan in place when you emphasize a lot on cooperation and collaboration that your commission have in place to deal with national government structure problems. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, um, I'm here representing myself, but I do work in humanitarian assistance and protection. Um, so I have a comment and then a sort of two-part quick question. Um, my comment is on results, and you asked for comments. And, and I think um, one of the challenges is to move beyond just looking at um, number of people affected to actually are we reaching the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and yep. I think that requires some innovative thinking in, it, in itself. Um, and my question is sort of specifically, I think, conflict-related in the sense that um, how do we encourage donors to be more innovative in their funding to support the synergies between um, humanitarian and development assistance? And from a personal perspective, how do we do that without compromising the humanitarian impartiality and independence of humanitarian organisations? Okay, well, thank you. Uh, so I'm going to expand and say... 
No brain, no pain, no gain. <laughs> yeah? Because you're right. I mean, it has to be not just uh, pain, but well thought through uh, to get the, the, to the results. Uh, on uh, eight effectiveness, the discussion there was uh, mostly oriented towards development actions and less so on the humanitarian side. Uh, partially, not that it is irrelevant for us, very relevant, but there are two differences. One is that in humanitarian activities, we don't give uh, money to governments. We send support directly to those who are affected. And because the humanitarian, this is the, the second reason, is because the humanitarian work is so, you know, hard breaking. I mean, you, you do face the most dramatic situations people are in. And actually, you see them also dignified, dealing with tremendous pain, dignified. I mean, that is another reason I'm a little less, uh, frankly, uh, soft on the European pain that we need to go through, because it is nothing in comparison to what people that are truly devastated uh, uh, face. So because this is the case, actually humanitarians are more, more uh, determined to make the best use of every euro, every pound they have. There is more of a, because you know that, that this one euro is a, safe, a life saved. I mean, it is a bit more uh, the, 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 the accountability pressure from the, those you help is more, uh, more direct. Uh, uh, but this, I mean, all this being said, we, we feel that we do have to be uh, more uh, capable of conveying to the public what we do with people's uh, money. Because it's not my money, it's your money. Uh, and therefore, for us in the humanitarian community, the discussion is how we can have relatively simple way we capture what we do and then also more engagement to explain what we do to the public because there is a bit of a lack of, of communication in the humanitarian uh, community. We kind of say, but of course what we do is morally right. We don't have to explain it. No, we do, we do, in, especially in these in this, uh, days. Uh, uh, I, uh, I, I will follow up on your question with my colleague, the Commissioner for Development, Mr. Peebalds, get a bit of sense of, I haven't yet talked to him on his reflection on uh, uh, Busan. Uh, Bangkok, well, I mean, uh, one of the big problems is that the city is built uh, on a low-lying land and it's sinking. And yet more and more cement is being thrown uh, over and that creates a big uh, problem. So we do have a... Uh, a, a serious problem in terms of building where we shouldn't or building what we shouldn't uh, and that doesn't apply just to, to the Thai government. I cannot think of any government that is not a culprit in terms of allowing. I mean, t t think of Madeira, the uh, flash floods that happened in Madeira. Uh, of course, cement everywhere, water comes, there is nowhere to go, it, it hits, uh, uh, kills people, uh, hits property. Uh, what we do in uh, Europe is to have a, to, to engage with governments on this preparedness and prevention mindset. I was in uh, Thailand actually just before the, the uh, floods, uh, and we agreed to work with ASEAN and through ASEAN with the, uh, of course, with Thailand as well on this uh, on this issue. And we have to work on it for many years. This is not going to be a one-shot. Uh, uh, action during uh, uh, my, my sympathy to, to the Thai people, we actually provided humanitarian assistance uh, to the victims of the uh, of the floods. Uh, uh, this year, we did something we have never done before. We have provided humanitarian assistance to a rich country, to Japan, uh, and we have to be mindful that that the needs are going to continue to to grow. Uh, I completely agree. Very very much appreciate the point on. Uh, target the most vulnerable. We try to do that. We, we, our staff and our partners, they look at who is at highest risk, and usually these are kids, pregnant women, single uh, 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 women households, uh, uh, elderly, handicapped. Uh, in, sometimes it is not easy. I remember last year during the floods in Pakistan, we visited a place where we were 
targeting to, to help, we didn't see, see a single woman because culturally it is not ex acceptable for women to be out in the open. And I kept worrying afterwards how effective have we been to, to reach out uh, to women. But we try, we try. This is uh, something that is uh, at the heart of the humanitarian community. As for the uh, 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 work in, uh, I mean, what can be done on conflict-related uh, issues, you, you, you basically gave the answer. It has to be a partnership between the humanitarian community and the uh, development community. Uh, I belong to both. I was in development, now I'm a humanitarian commissioner. And what I can say is that there is really a cultural uh, difference. The humanitarians, and they both, both communities look down at each other. The humanitarians say, we are about speed, and this development people, they're very slow on the uptake. And the development community says, the humanitarians, yeah, they rush, they have no knowledge of sustainability, what they do doesn't last. Uh, and yet, both communities have a role to play. Uh, and, they, and there is an, a very important need of building bridges between, between them. Uh, Mrs. Ogata, I was sharing this with Robert. Uh, do you know who is Mrs. Ogata? Well, for the younger people, maybe not known. She is an icon because she was the, the person who transformed UNHCR, the uh, UN uh, Refugees uh, High Commissioner uh, organization, transformed it. So Mrs. Ogata, a Japanese lady who up to her 40s was a housewife and all of a sudden became this huge international uh, leadership figure. She finished 10 years in UNHCR and gave a speech in Washington chaired by my former, former boss, President Wolfenson. And then she said that this speech, unfinished, unfinished business, the unfinished business is for humanitarians and development community to come together. We owe it to people. 99, we are 2001, not yet done. And I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm keen to see it uh, happening. In conflict environments, the, you, you ask how to protect the independence, principled approach. Uh, well, the best way, the best way uh, to protect it is to not allow anything, anything but needs and access to determine humanitarian action. Nothing else, no politics, no religion, no color of your skin, nothing. And that is what protects uh, humanitarians best. Okay, I think we should end it there. The Bulgarian students at LSE have asked if they could have a session with Kristalina. Uh, so um, we can meet here and, uh, no, actually, um, let's, let's go down to the, the green room, which is, um, in front of the old theatre, if you're standing facing the old theatre, it's on the left, and we will meet up there in, in just a few minutes. Okay. Bulgarian students and Kristalina. So, Kristalina, thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you.